All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? And how do you get it? I'm your host, Jeff Coulard. Welcome to the show. a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Powerful. My name is Jeff Coulard, and I'm really excited about today's guest. He's an executive coach and strategic advisor to really purpose-driven companies is the work that he does. And he helps leaders really dig into the the things that are holding them back and the things that are holding their team back from achieving all that they want, their their biggest hopes and goals and dreams and objectives in life. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to know him, call him a good friend and colleague for a few years now. We actually met at TEDx Canmore, where we both talked about a Addiction in different ways. Um, he talked about addiction to smartphones and technology, and I talked about some of the underlying assumptions and foundations of addiction from my experience working with youth in addictions treatment over the years. And so I know I'm really excited. We're going to dig into a bunch of different things about uh, leadership and the future and how we can design the future and work towards the future that we want. Um, and I'm sure that we're going to have a great conversation. So without further ado, uh, my good friend, Ernest Barbaric. Ernest, welcome so much. And uh, thank you so much. And welcome to the show. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for having me. This is uh, wonderful. I, I We talked about doing something like this for, I feel like, years and I'm really glad that we're doing it now. I can't believe it's taken me this long to have you on the show. So <laughs> you are actually one of the driving forces behind the podcast originally getting up and running. You gave me tons of great advice. You told me which microphone to buy. You gave, told me like what software to use. Like, I feel like I should have a little credits, you know, courtesy of Ernest Barbaric <laughs> on every show. So, I'll take it. Yeah, <laughs> Appreciate awesome. it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, thank you. And we didn't really land on it, like a super clear, we're going to talk exactly about this thing for for the hour, but what I'd love to dig into is your work right now because your work has shifted and it's migrated um, since I've known you anyway from, you know, working on kind of marketing and, you know, I guess marketing was probably your like what you were best known for there for a few years um, or, or probably most of your career. And, but you do more coaching now, more executive coaching, leadership coaching. Um, what's, I'm curious, what made the, what made that shift happen for you or what drove that shift? It's a transition. That's a whole topic to unearth. Uh, in and of itself. And um, hmm, there were a number of different things that led to it. Uh, And I'll give you the very short version so we can get into some of the other stuff. So for the last 15 years, I've been a digital marketing strategist, uh, digital strategist. I taught at universities, spoken at conferences, did a bunch of strategy work with all kinds of different companies. And um, parallel to that, hmm, I'll give you the, I'm trying to summarize it. So in uh, 2011, late 2011, we found out that my mom had lung cancer and uh, she had an eight month battle with it and she passed away in 2012. And that was a pivotal time for me. Bef- even before that, I was thinking about what, what am I doing here? You know, I've had a successful consultancy and things were going really well, um, but there was something that wasn't quite vibing with me. So after my mom passed away, I ended up reading an article 
called You Have 30,000 Days of Life to Live by Sir Ray Avery that was written for TechCrunch. And uh, it really resonated with me that year. And that's what really sparked this uh, idea in me to wonder about what my purpose was, what am I here to do, what am I going to do with the time that I had. Um, and my mom had a significant impact on the people in her circle. And so there were a lot of those kind of things that I was reflecting on at that time. And so I decided to figure out what is meaningful work and then how do I do that? It was very selfish from that perspective. So I started interviewing everybody that I knew that was doing meaningful work, or at least it looked that way. And so I ended up having over doing over 130 interviews uh, with all kinds of interesting people, entrepreneurs, authors, New York Times bestselling authors, executives, leaders, um, thought leaders. And, uh, and eventually, as I started doing that, people started contacting me. Uh, you know, you did this episode with this person, this impacted me in this way. And there was one person in particular that invited me to a uh, conversation one morning. Uh, it was a VP at a, at a big company. Um, and I was like, weird, but okay. And so we, we sat down and had breakfast and I felt very intimidated. I'm used to doing strategy work, but this was, this was not where they hired me to solve a problem. This was me having a conversation, which I didn't really know what it was, but it was very personal. And it turned out that he was also inspired by some of the stuff that I was writing and, uh, and podcasting about at the time. And he was thinking about making a transition. And I felt I didn't feel like I actually had anything good or um, competent to say to this person. Um, so that made me really think about, well, I'm producing this kind of work I'm resonating with these kind of people. I love helping people. So what is a way that I could possibly find out how to do this better without telling someone what to do, mm-hmm. which I didn't feel like was the right thing to do. And so that eventually led me to coaching. And I remember the very first class. Uh, so I went through CTI and I remember the very first fundamentals class, uh, the very first day at the end of the first day. I, uh, I felt like I found it. I felt like I found a thing that I was looking for for 10 years, maybe even longer. And I was like, this is it. And you found, uh, you found your meaningful work. I found, I what found happens? a thing. And then as a part of it, you also have to coach people while you're going through the program and the feedback from the people that I was coaching was excellent. And it just reinforced all these different ideas that I had about meaningful work and uh, about serving people and about having an impact and having it fulfilled me and help them make a transition. And so all of that culminated in a, in a career tra- transition that took two years <laughs> to make. Uh, and then, uh, and then, and that was it. And I was all in. And so now I get to work with, and, and through the process, I, I figured out that the kinds of people that I like to work with are, what I'm at the time calling innovative leaders, people doing meaningful work, people that want to do meaningful work, people that are driving change and innovation and progress. And uh, we just kind of find each other. And those are the people that I work with. Awesome. That's great. And it's interesting how our, how the trajectories, like you can't really map them out. You couldn't go back to 2010 or 11 and say, I'm going to be an executive coach to <laughs> right? There's points on the journey that, you know, contribute to that bending the trajectory, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, what, when you think about innovation, let's, let's jump right to that because sure. one thing that I think we wanted to cover today, and we might as well just dig right into it is the, st- 
the challenges that we're facing. Like the, the, there's a lot of them, right? Mm-hmm. From we're on the eve, actually, accidentally, we're on the eve of an American election, which is probably a pretty significant American election. Like they've probably all been significant to some degree or another, but this one feels particularly good versus evil, <laughs> like, you know, right versus left. Like it's, it seems like it's very polarizing or it's, it's the culmination of a lot of polarizing politics in that country anyway. And we're seeing remnants of that. I mean, I live in Alberta. You recently left Alberta with your family to, to move to BC. You know, we're not immune to that type of polarization. So that's a challenge. We could dig into mm-hmm. that, but there's, there's other challenges, you know, probably bigger. So there's, there's climate change, there's environmental degradation, there's alternative energy, there's, you know, AI and the, the rise of the, the computer like technology that we may not have a good kind of grasp on um, probably don't have a very good grasp on what the impacts might be. There seems like there's a lot of challenges. And I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about that space, future space, and how do we tackle challenges? So do you want to just bite one off and say, like, do we want to talk about some of the challenges or do you want to talk about how you help leaders face them? Like that seems like an interesting conversation because there's been a lot of, you know, adapt 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 and yeah. i know that drives you a little bit crazy it's like why are we adapting why aren't we designing something better right like why are we using this as an impetus to well, there's go. a lot there's a lot to <laughs> i mean there's a lot to unpack there there's a lot, there are a lot of different threads that we can follow but um i think the thing that you mentioned is the one that resonates with me, with me the most and it's this idea of um we are in challenging times Interestingly enough, we don't have to be in challenging times. So it depends on how the leaders that we have are putting context around the times that we're in, how we as a society are are interacting with the context that that we're in. Um, It seems to me like there is a very strong element of I versus us. And so I see that as a... um, I see that as one of the significant challenges at a societal level that we have to overcome. Um, the flip side to that is I feel like coming from the marketing background, I have an understanding of how some of these ideas percolate in society and how you can actually shift public opinion with, um, well, essentially marketing. And, you know, what, what we see here now is, is like, um, a polariz- the polarization is is a result of a long-term campaign to make things that way. And it's always us versus them, our team versus their team versus we're all on the same team together. So those are some of the challenges that I, that I see. Um, so if we were in this exact same situation as we are now, such as facing climate change, uh, you know, AI automation, taking away jobs, those kinds of things, I believe that if we had a different context around it, we would be, we would be thinking about it very differently. So, for example, um, we know that AI has that once implemented properly has the ability to replace a number of different jobs, a number of different people. So, some of us, some people look at it as a threat, or some others see it as an opportunity. And so, an opportunity could be that by using this, by using AI in this way, for example. We have the ability to free up time for other people to do more meaningful work, but we also need to take care of them. Now, to take care of them, there is this uh, there is attention around taxes, social support, and all these kind of kind of things. So, this ideologies and everything kind of gets bungled up together in this really messy situation that we're in. I do feel like we can do better, and this is where I think that working with the kinds of leaders that um, I work with and I want to work with. 
they see things differently. They see a way to use technology, use the changes, use the challenges that we have to rise up together and to solve them and create a better world tomorrow than it is today. And that's a really non-answer to your question, but that kind of gives you a bit of a context for how I'm looking at things. Yeah, that's okay. I'm going to ask the detailed questions now. Who's Who do you look to right now who's doing that well? A leader, a company, a, a community of people that are really taking the bull by the horns and you know, really stepping into leadership to create that type of future. Hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting because there are they're very different levels. So you have large organizations that are starting to see, I actually just bookmarked an article today um, that are starting to see the winds shift. So literally the winds shift. So it's, it's a, there's a significant change from essentially like uh, uh, fossil fuel investments into renewables. So you see this with um, insurance agencies, investment companies, investment funds. So the Norway fund has made significant changes. So we're starting to see some of these kind of shifts. Uh, in terms of taking care of people, I see this more on a smaller business scale where we see um, startups, we see some newer organizations that are taking into consideration um, the social impact, the um, uh, the environmental impact of what they do. You know, one company that comes to mind is, is from Calgary, and I feel like they've done a fairly good job with... Uh, with some of these kind of initiatives and that's fiasco, which is now known as, as righteous, right? So they have certain things that they've layered up in how they do business uh, that has a social impact. There's a good culture. It's a good place to work. They pay a living wage and all of these other kind of things. So that change is possible. And those are the kinds of organizations and leaders that I see leading this change. Um, but they also are facing some headw- headwinds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's the, the rules of the game, I suppose, that have been established around the, like, especially in the Western context, this North American capitalist individualistic society that measures things by GDP and or profit margins on a quarterly basis. Those types of that system work playing within that system is it's really hard to get different results, right? It's different. It's really hard. And like you say, there's headwinds in that. Like you got to how do you how do you do that in a way? And certainly, there's been a rise in B corps. Um, would probably be something that's been an interesting trend to watch. Is is corporations with social missions or environmental missions baked right in to the, the mm-hmm. fabric and the DNA? There's been a lot of talk about you know social entrepreneurship and those types of things. Um, less so you know, probably in North America than other places around the world. I, you know, when we when we talk about B corps and, and social impact, I feel like there aren't too many examples of organizations that are doing this as a, as a key part of their DNA. It almost seems like a, attaching a CSR to, to something that already exists. And, and the social impact means something like, Hey, we'll donate money to this school. We'll donate money to this, uh, um, you know, indigenous area or something like that versus, uh, versus, versus designing the DNA in a different way where we can actually involve the people that are in it. We can actually make everything better uh, by working together, by involving other people, by including diver- by in- inclusion, diversity. Um, you know, the, the, the saying is that, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. That's the way that I'm kind of looking at it. And, and we need a few people to start making those kind of changes to normalize them. Because right now, like you said, in the Western context, uh, what's normal is what um, uh, strategic coach uh, Dan Sullivan talks about is that idea of rugged individualism. 
And that only gets you so far. And then at that point, you're kind of like, I got mine. And so everybody else can do whatever they want. So as long as things don't affect you, you're good. You live in your own little bubble. And meanwhile, the impacts of the, of the, of the decisions that you made are impacting every, all the people around outside of your bubble. And so I feel like th- that's the kind of shift that from yeah. rugged individualism. So his system is you go from rugged individualism to uh, unique ability, which is where we have the ability to work with people that are working in their zone of genius or their areas of strength. And so you can create these cohesive teams. You can make uh, even ad hoc teams if that's the direction to go. You can involve people for what they're really good at uh, rather than everybody out for themselves. Okay. And how have you faced that tendency or that impulse? Because I'm assuming you have that impulse because I have that impulse. And most people I know have that impulse of individualism. Get something for yourself, protect it, spend some of our time. I talk about like at risk versus at stake. And when we're, when we're in an at-risk mindset, and we could dig into mindset because it seems like there's probably some pieces of mindset, and I'm usually mm-hmm. pretty hard on, on mindset, and so we could, that might be an interesting <laughs> conversation. Um, but how do, you, or how do you notice that tendency, or what do you do with that tendency when it comes up in you? Because I'm assuming it's baked into most of us as Western, like, raised or, like, male Western, yeah. like, achievements and individualism. It's a cultural thing. And uh, one of the things that um, often comes up for me is is this idea of a lack of imagination, or I should say a lack of a shared imagination where we are exposed to um, individuals and we kind of, through the media and through whatever else, through the narrative, uh, we, we admire individuals. We admire Steve Jobs or admired Steve Jobs. We admire... Um, uh, what's his name? King James. We admire Elon Musk, but around and behind Elon Musk is an army of people that are making those things a reality. Um, around Steve Jobs, there's an army of people that have made his products a reality. And um, what happens is that you 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 notice that there's a certain limitation, and then an anxiety to the idea of being a rugged individualist. It's a um, it's a limiting factor. So it helps you get to a certain point, but then there has to be a process of evolution to get past that. Um, If you start butting up against that reality where there's only so much that you can do, there's only so many people you can drag across the finish line. There's only, um, there's only so much I and me. The shift from there is, is it can be a really uncomfortable one because I would say uh, quite a few leaders that have gotten to their that have gotten to their positions that have rose up the ranks. They were recognized because they were really good at what they did. And they're really a rugged individual um, until they get to the point where they have to make significant change across the organization, lead teams in a different way where they have to recognize that, well, it's not about me. It's about us and what I contribute to the whole. So it's about contribution rather than taking. It's almost like that idea that Adam, Adam, uh, Adam Grant talks about, givers and takers. So there's a few different kind of layers that, that we can pick apart a little bit more. Um, but the, um, the way that I see it is I look at what is my role and what is my contribution. So that's, that's the way that I break through it. And then second of all, what is the kind of vision of the world that I want to create and how do I contribute to that? So I look at it, what's my unique contribution towards that. And that might include in this particular case, in the context that I work in, is I work with the kinds of leaders that are contributing to that kind of future. Right. So that 
seems like maybe we can touch in on vision a little bit because it seems like maybe it's actually a lack of vision that's holding this, this that keeps the status quo in place, right? Is it a lot of energy and effort goes into maintaining the status quo yeah. and without a strong enough vision to pull us through the discomfort and the uncomfortableness of breaking shit for lack of a, a better phrase <laughs> to build something new or letting things break. We have a tendency once we build something, it seems to really want to protect it. Right. Well, I mean, and, and, and that's natural in a way too, right? Because I mean, essentially what happens is that if you look at as, as look, if you look at it, as you age, you go through changes, you learn things, you build up something and then you want that. You don't want that something taken away from you. And uh, the kind of environment that some people are in is that they feel like something will be taken away from them. So therefore, I don't want anything to change, which is one of the one of the many reasons of resistance to change. Um, and uh, however, the the that's a narrative. That's a story. That's a story that's supported through the kind of experience that some of these people have, whether it's fed through TV or through media or whatever else, or their own experiences, which can be. Uh, which can be um, uh, tinted by what they hear, what they see, what they hear. I feel like, you know, if you think about the, I mean, Star Trek is a really good example for me. Star Trek, uh, first of all, I'm a big sci-fi geek. (laughs) Star Trek was, uh, it's an interesting show in which you saw a society that has advanced, solved all kinds of different problems, including climate change and energy and, and, and colonization of other planets and, 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 and. So it kind of gave us this vision of what's possible. If you look at, I mean, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but if you look at what the narrative is now with the, with the kind of movies that we get, with the kind of uh, uh, media that we're exposed to, it's apocalyptic, there's zombies, there is uh, COVID-23 just is coming out uh, recently, which is what happens when, uh, I don't know if you heard about the movie, but COVID-23 is a movie about when COVID-19 mutates twice and we're now four years into quarantine and, and all of these things are happening. It's like a horror movie, right? And so so all of that feeds into the culture that we're in. So what I see as, as a lack is a lack of someone that sees a better vision. So that's why, for example, Elon Musk stands out so much. He sees a way for us to go to Mars. He sees a way for us to have uh, free communication, like or easily accessible communication all all across the globe with Starlink. He sees a way to make electric cars. Like I mean, that's a company that came out of I would I don't want to say came out of nowhere, but um, it's a company that wasn't really on the radar of the big car companies and is now the most valuable car company. And and so so you can see these kind of so you can see this one person driving all of these different kinds of changes. And so. Um, but that's someone that has a vision and imagination people are people want more of that that that's the way that i see it so you have someone that has you know a sci-fi-ish positive sci-fi kind of vision that's pulling us towards this uh this vision of free energy uh fast cars beautiful you know technology world that is sustainable and is equitable uh versus something that's much more like in the comparison that i like to make something that's much more mad max you can be in a tribe. Everybody gets their own. We're going to fight for water or whatever it is. And we're going to go on these like raids and get their stuff. And, and um, those are the kind of two polar opposites that I see. And I, and I would like to see more leaders cast a more positive vision. And then you, and that's what I'm seeing more with, with younger leaders. Now uh, they're casting this positive vision and, uh, and people are getting enrolled in it. And this is what we see as a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if there was easy answers, we would have had this sorted out 
eons ago, I think, you know, when you actually look at humanity's progress, like in the long term, we've actually made a ton of progress, right? Mm -hmm. When you take a big enough vision, when you think about where we came from to where we are now in a inclusion technology, like abundance place, like, I don't know if you've read Sapiens and some of those. Yeah. So like there's things to feel really good about in the sense that like we've, we've broken through some barriers. We've, we've, we've cured some diseases, right? We cure diseases all the time. Um, We've also exterminated a lot of the, you know, flora and fauna on the planet accidentally, (laughs) unintentionally. Right. And so there's this like yin and yang piece for me. And I think that you, you touched on it there with tribalism versus like shared vision for humanity right like mm-hmm. i think that there's a fundamental and maybe like that's what we're seeing the amplification of polarization in in politics is very tribal in nature there is no talking between democrats and republicans in the states and there's even like there's not a lot of talking between the ndp and the the conservatives in, in alberta yeah right? it's you it's um, to a camp and off you go well i mean it's very and that takes us in a different direction but i mean that, that's that's this idea of adherence to an ideology and and the other thing that i that i see in um from that perspective and again this is leaning more on the marketing messaging influence manipulation side of things is there is um a negative view on evolution so let's say for example if you have a politician or a leader of some kind that whose views have changed then they're looked at as a turncoat and they're looked at as someone who didn't stick to their you know values or guns or whatever else and so you have someone that at 19 made a decision to be one way and they have to stay exactly the same way until they die mm-hmm. uh, with very little tolerance for evolution which is where you should be you know it's 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 um it's a sign of intelligence to know that we were wrong and we can grow this clearly didn't work and is not serving us so we can let that go and keep moving on and so that this, um, I would like to see more, more recognition and more support of this idea of evolving views, of evolving things that know that it, we're not, you can't stay stuck like this forever. We're going to change because times are changing. Um, you know, if you look at what some of these laws, decisions, and ideologies were made, it was made in a very different time. Um, so even even the idea even the idea of an eight hour workday uh, five days a week was made in in the times of uh, of times of Ford when Ford was supposed to get started right so there are all of these different things that need some updating but right now we've stuck to these structures because they give us security because if we change anything we're going to be uncertain we don't know how it's going to work how's that gonna, what's the impact going to be on the financial markets I don't know and it seems like sometimes there's enough uncertainty in the world we don't need to add to it by dismantling the things that we can hold on to. Well, it's a um, false sense of security. It's a false sense of certainty, right? Like it's, it's like, um, it's, it's like being, it's, really it's like being on the Titanic, right? The Titanic is shipping, but I'm going to hold on to this table because this is my table. The <laughs> fact that the Titanic is, is, is sinking is, is, is still a reality, but I'm going to hold on. And so it's just kind of, it, it's a different, uh, I mean, it's a different take. And this is where I see the kinds of leaders that I really connect with are the ones that have a vision for something that's better and the ones that are enrolling others you know one of the biggest challenges is communicating that vision to to other people and so um you know changing the narrative making this possible mm-hmm. and, and the people that resist change just expanding that range of possibly just a little bit to accept the fact that things could be different and you'll be okay mm-hmm. and so we see this with teams we see the organization we see this at a societal level as well 
I'm sorry. I feel like I'm, we're having a very meta, meta ranging conversation. It's my podcast. I can talk, we can talk about whatever we want. <laughs> All right. Um, and it, but it seems like, so two questions pop up for me. One, I want to backtrack a little bit to the society of evolution. And I'm curious around how you've evolved recently, you know, aside from the transition career wise, is there a belief, an idea, a certainty that you were holding on to that you've evolved from? So let's start there. I mean, there were the period of time that I went through, specifically in the last year, has definitely been uh, has been a lot of growth. And um, there, are, there, I mean, there are a lot of different things that we can touch on. One specific one could potentially be even just talking about the idea of uncertainty. You know, I remember, and I talked about this on my podcast as well. I remember writing down in my journal uh, about a year and a half ago. I was like, I was thinking, thing, you know, things were stable. And I was thinking, how do I practice uncertainty? And I wrote that down. And then a couple months later, everything imploded. A good opportunity to practice. Yeah. Um, so the way that one of the things that evolved for me was uh, a change out of, out of all that process is a change from goals to a compass. Um, I'm a very goal-oriented person. And what I've come to realize is that with, those, with, with that kind of thinking, with that kind of leading with that kind of behavior, there are certain costs. One of the costs is that you don't ever, you don't necessarily notice the journey. You're just focused solely on the destination. And when you get there, when you achieve those kind of things that you thought you would want to achieve, perhaps as an individual or as an organization, you're like, well, that's, um, that was that. <laughs> and, then, and then, and then, yeah, you know, check. And then, and then it's just kind of empty again. And so, and, and there's this, um, there's this um, uh, succession of, of random goals just to keep growing. And, you know, if you look at it from, a, from, a, from an organizational perspective, it could be simply, well, we need to grow revenue by 8%. Cool. You know, and then you do that. And then next year it's like, well, now it needs to be 8% again. You're like, okay, well, you know, there's, there's not a lot of juice to that. I mean, in compensation for, for high level leaders, there is, but there is a lot of juice to that. And uh, the, so the change that I've made was moved towards um, more of a compass. So having a very clear idea of whether I'm going toward or away from um, from the direction that feels right. Let's, dig, really into, let's dig into that because sure. you, you can't just drop this like, yeah, I've shifted from goals to compass and then we move on. <laughs> How do you set your compass? How do you like, what are the points on it? that are like what makes it a compass and how do you use it like practically speaking how has that impacted your i guess your work your life your parenting your impacts decisions you make and decisions uh, impact the actions that you take which impact everything else that happens in your life or in your organization team whatever else um so it's i wish i had a simpler answer but uh the one that i can give you is that um if somebody has ever seen, if you've ever seen uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, I'm not sure which one, and but in one of them, Jack goes and finds a, a compass that's a, that doesn't point north. So he opens it up and they ask him, "What's it for?" And he says, "Well, it always point towards you want towards what you want the most." So it's kind of like that. So it's not necessarily up towards a goal, but you're you're looking at am I close? Am I close? Am I getting? If I take this step, am I closer to where I want to be or who I want to become, or am I not closer to where I want to be and where who I want to become on a personal level? You can do the same thing as a, for a team or for an organization. And one of the and so 
behind that, there's a number of checks that you can do. So one of the things that are really important to me is to really look at values. Um, I do a lot of work with values with the individuals that I coach with, with the teams that I work with. <coughs> Excuse me. And so uh, having clarity on what your values are, what our values are, gives us an indication of when it's time to make a decision, we can run it through those values and see if this is the right decision or is the wrong decision for us. Mm -hmm. And to be okay with saying no to things, to be okay with um, refusing certain projects, certain connections, certain um, directions in hiring, for example. So that would be that would be one. The other thing that I often look at on individual level is I, is I look at uh, what is it what what gives you energy, what takes your energy away, what drains your energy. So <clears throat> this is the kind of work um, that again takes some journaling, takes some time to develop. But if you are observant about the kinds of things that affect your energy level, that affect your mood, that affect how uh, vibrant you feel, for example, going after some going after something. Uh, meeting with certain people, making certain connections, making decisions, you can very, after a fairly short period of time, month or two months, you can figure out what is the type of thing that gives me energy. And that that's another node in that compass. And we can also layer up a number of different things, but those two would be really simple to start with. So values, getting super clear about okay. what they are for yourself, values, for the team, and then where your energy, energy would be another one. Yeah. And is journaling <laughs> your primary practice for like reflecting on that, calibrating that compass? How do you go about, because lots of people will say, I care about this thing and then they behave in a totally opposite way. And that's me. Like I, I'll, I'm guilty of that. I'm sure of saying, oh yeah, fitness is super important. Did Jeff go for a run today? Jeff did not go for a run today. So it obviously wasn't that important. So um, <laughs> how do you get people um, to really get clarity on those two pieces? So that takes a little bit of work and it usually takes another person to do it. It's really hard to do it for yourself because what ends up happening is, for example, if we're talking about values, um, you'll pick out values out of a list and you'll be like, well, you know, integrity feels like the right thing for me. And so there's a few different distinctions. So one is aspirational values and real values. Um, you need to be aware of which ones are which. And like you mentioned, your behavior is going to give you the best kind of uh, indicator. If you say that fitness is a value or health is a value and you choose to make a different choice, clearly something else overrides that aspirational value. So that gives you some awareness around give you some awareness around uh, um, the reality of the situation. Sometimes there might be opportunity, there might be a need to flex a little bit. So if we're talking about an organization, for example, and they say that, you know, one of our, one of our values is integrity, but at the same time, the company is sinking. So we have to take on this crappy project. You know, are you going to stick to your values and hold off for the next project? Or are you going to have to just take this one and, and get through it? And how, would, what's the context that you will look at that on? So I, I keep that in the back of my mind as well. Mm -hmm. Um. So um, the process is usually we have a conversation and, uh, and what I would do with, with the individual that I'm working with, I'll ask them for meaningful things that happened or meaningful stories that they uh, have um, that can share with me, something that has an impact on their life. Then I look at who, the, who are the kinds of people that they look up to. And through all of that kind of work, what you notice is you start noticing certain patterns. And it's in those patterns that we start finding values. So, so the first the first layer is to find out what kind of words and phrases they repeat. What are the kind of themes that are common, and out of that, I'll extract certain values. And the other thing that happens is that values mean different things to different people. Um, I remember when I was when I was working with a uh, two founders, and they were starting an insurance company. And uh, <clears throat> so the funny thing that happened is that we made this list, we went through it, 
And so I asked him individually, so what does this mean to you? And so he would explain the value of integrity means this. And I asked the other person, was like, oh, really? That's what that means? So they had this complete miscommunication about the, the exact same values and looking at them, interpreting in very different ways. And so it's that kind of work that gets you to understand the context of, for example, if I say integrity, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to the team? What does that mean to the organization? If you're in a leadership position, you get to send the context and you say that integrity means this. And this is the kind of behavior that we expect. This is the kind of behavior that we support. And then as a leader, you get to support that kind of behavior through the kind of actions that you take, the team members that you recognize, how you speak about it, what you bring up. You can work on, a, on an individual level as well, where I'll do that, for example, as a back check to say, is this with it, is this, am I in integrity here if I, if I make this decision? So I feel like, again, we're kind of uh, a little bit all over the place here, but I'm hoping that kind of touches on the question. No, I, I don't know if there actually was a question that kicked that that piece off, but you know, I'm always interested in in I guess the tools that people are using or what you're finding effective for yourself at the individual self level. Because at the end of the day, like I, you know, I forget who said the quote. I'm going to not get the quote right, but it's you know, everyone wants to change the world, but no one thinks to change themselves, right? Yeah. So there's this interesting connection, this dynamic between what we want to manifest and we want to build what we want, like a vision for the outer world. And our ability to maintain that direction in the inner well, turmoil that often kicks up in our day to day. You know, when you mentioned that the, the the piece that I'm writing right now is the is the end uh, is the end episode of the series that I did on the idea of transition. And when you're going through change, change is challenging. Change isn't easy. Evolution isn't a pretty process. Uh, innovation isn't a pretty process. Reinventing your organization or yourself isn't a pretty process. And so. To, to to do something like that, there are all kinds of obstacles that come up. And then you have to continually make a, a decision and continually have to make a commitment to keep moving forward because otherwise it's really easy to fall back, which is, again, you know, to circle back to the beginning of our conversation, which makes it so easy to stay the same, which is why we see, you know, larger organizations that have built this massive momentum in believing things are always going to be this way. And so they, their entire world is reinvesting in making things that way, but the world changes and you have to evolve. And then that change becomes more difficult, the more ingrained that momentum is. It's like the Alberta government putting $30 million into a war room to convince the world that fossil fuels are the future. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's that kind of behavior, right? It's crazy. It, it is. And, you know, again, there's a reason for that kind of behavior. And you often say that as well in, in the way that you the way that you see things and the way that you've helped, you know, essentially addicts um, and to just to to understand what's the justification for that kind of behavior. And the justification is safety. If we change, it's not going to be safe. It's not going to be the same. It's going to be uncertain. Well, what if it's not as good as it is right now? What if I have to give up something? You know, there's a lot of questions that come up. And so help? with change. How do, you help so leaders, how do you help leaders navigate that uncertainty? Because that's something else. Like, so there's the compass of just bang my microphone. There's the the compass of like understanding what your values are. There's some sort of vision out into the future that we've established. But mm. then when you're in it, like when you're in the shit of an uncertainty and things mm. are hard, and the pull back to the status quo or the pull to do things kind of half heartedly, right, and not fully commit. Um, how do we navigate that at any well, level? Commitment is, is a really big, interesting question there. And commitment is also the answer. Um, once there is a vision that is big enough that creates a pull of its own, 
that you can viscerally see it and feel it and you know. So vision is another one of the components of the compass that we didn't talk about. But am I getting closer towards that or further away? Because the, the thing is, once you, I mean, th think about it this way. When uh, the U.S. decided that they're going to land on the moon, there was a vision that was big enough. It motivated the entire country to work together and to literally put a man on the moon. That's, that's the power of a vision that you can enroll your teams in. When you are, so if you, we'll take the vision aside, we're talking about the idea of uncertainty. So when you're in it and things aren't going well, it takes a continual daily commitment to remember what you're doing this for. And so this is where that idea of a vision of a, of a stronger why also comes into play. Um, when, it, you know, the thing that I find with, uh, with innovative leaders in particular, the challenges they run into is resistance to change quite often. So they have a vision like this things will be better if we do these five things. And now they have to convince the people that are invested in things not changing, right? Um, <clears throat> and so they're in this position where they're pulling towards something, but there's also a, but also a drag on the back. And when it comes to something that there's a, there's a number of different factors that come into play. Uh, one is holding on to the vision. And then the second one is, I, I talk about this idea of dual horizons. So vision is your long-term horizon. And then there's also what's here right now. So, the, um, you know, you can look at it as mindfulness or mindful leadership or, or however, but the idea about it is that right this second, right now, what is it that I can do? What's one tiny little thing that we can do together to move us a step in that direction? And we take it one step at a time. And you can do that as an, at, an, at an individual level, as a team, or as an organization. So that's one way to deal with, uh, with, with being in the overwhelm of uncertainty, is to create certainty. To, to say that we... That time frame enough to so shorten it to now certainty to like right now we're okay and we can yeah. do this and, so and you can say for right now what we need to do is we need to i don't know create a report or send out five different communications to organizations that we would like to partner with can we do that yes we can let's go that's how you as a leader create certainty doing things one step at a time you do enough of those you build momentum in this in this in this kind of a direction well one of the leaders that i've um that i will be interviewing next week or this week actually one of the one of the things that he uses to build team cohesion very quickly and to start making change happen he, he uses he uses simple and quick wins so if you set for example a new higher up and give them an opportunity to prove themselves through a series of quick wins you build up momentum and you can use the same thing uh when you're reorient, reorienting a team or an organization or even for yourself so so that's one that's one way to deal with it is to create certainty the horizon the two piece, two ways to create certainty is one is to shorten up the time horizon and then mm -hmm. the other would be to decrease the size of what you're biting off right we're not asking for the whole change we're not asking you to get the close the gap between where we currently are we're mm -hmm. going to make that gap as small as possible about bite-sized chunk small win that can be you know start to get some momentum um in, in the direction that we want I mean, all, all it is is just a series of small steps. And that's where the idea of, uh, of a compass versus a goal comes back into play. For example, a compass tells you if we take this tiny little step right now together, it was, was this the right step to make? Yes, based on our compass. Great. Okay, let's take another one from here. Well, that wasn't the right one. Okay, so let's not do that. Let's do this a little bit differently. 
So instead of like going from A to B, what you end up doing is you end up navigating your way from A to B by using your compass versus I need to get there. So this is where idea, you know, a, a lot of the strategy work that I've done was uh, looking at things three to five years down the road. The reality is there's so much change in every possible way, society, politically, technology, that it's it's uh, impossible to predict what's going to happen three to five years from now. I mean, you can make some you can make some extrapolations, which is what I used to do, but the reality is focus on the now, and you have your vision of where you want things to be, and so one tiny little step at a time. And I mean, I also want to share that. Even though this is what I'm sharing, there are uh, so there I've I've learned some of this stuff from the coach that I was working with. Um, I've learned this through my own experiences, and so it's just been reinforced a number of different ways. So it's not my idea, but this is what works. Huh. I think all of us take that unique wiring and of our experiences and our our knowledge, and we package it and we language it in a way that makes sense, right? And that's the. Right. The beauty of having a guest like you on the podcast is you get to help us make sense of some of these things that you've been experiencing and thinking about. Um, it might be a little bit of a detour, but we're going to take it a little off ramp into this area of mindfulness. And because it's a, it's a hot topic. I worry about Mick mindfulness. I worry about it being used to reinforce the status quo as much as anything. There's, I actually struggle with it. Um, it's made its way into the classroom, like elementary school classrooms quite a bit is teach kids mindfulness. And I'm like, let's teach kids to dismantle power structures that are oppressive so that they don't have to like learn how to be mindful to manage their anxiety that we're causing in these systems of oppression. Right? So that's where my mind goes is like, let's not use mindfulness to hold up the status quo. That might be a bit cynical. We can talk about that at another time. Um, Cause I do know the power of mindfulness. We experimented with it and addictions and mental health treatment has been experimenting with it for probably the last 10 ish years, maybe 10 or 15 years. It's been a bit more mainstream. We saw very powerful clinical effects when we introduced young people to mindfulness and had, had helped them establish a, a practice. And it, it showed like we clinically reduced lots of symptoms and signs of anxiety and depression mm-hmm. by introducing mindfulness. So I know the power of it at the individual level. So let's not get bogged down in my systems and, and you know power dynamics piece. Let's talk about mindfulness and impacts it's had on you impacts. You've right. seen it have on other leaders and maybe quick wins, <clears throat> speaking of quick wins and like what can people do now um, to have a small quick win with mindfulness if it's new to them. Right. And they want to dig in. Not to put yeah. you, not to expect a you know, mindfulness expert. That's a lot of different things to tackle. Um, right. Here is, and, and I want to think about it in the way that'll be helpful to the people that are listening. Um, mindfulness is a big topic. And I feel like there are some interesting things that you bring up. And that's the idea. It's almost being used as a band-aid to not look at what's causing the anxiety, but just like, here, just be mindful. You'll be fine. You know, you're stressed out. You can't sleep at night. Just be mindful. Clearly, you're not being mindful enough, which is uh, which is not, not really how it works. Um, I have a bit of a, a perhaps a unique take on it because I've been a Zen practitioner for 12-ish, 15 years or so. Um, I've tried out a number of different meditations. I've read about mindfulness. I've studied it. Um, what... If you were to kind of boil it down into a very pragmatic um, context, it would be about awareness about what is now. So one way to look at it and one way to practice mindfulness is um, to be very, to almost like if you were to look at, it's going to be a weird metaphor, but 
most of our life is kind of this way. So we have, we're on this side and that camera is pointing out. So what mindfulness allows you to do, it allows you to turn the camera inward and see what's happening. So you can see what's happening in your mind. You can see what's happening in your body. For example, those would be two different things. And so one simple way to get start to, to start it is that, um, and this is what I've used is I've dealt with a depression and anxiety where I would feel anxiety starting to rise up. And at that point, sometimes it takes a lot of effort to practice uh, slowing down and just observing. So what's actually happening? So I might be thinking that I'm anxious about this project not coming through, but what's actually happening right now, right this moment? Like I feel that my palms are a little bit sweaty. I feel that my legs are a little bit sore. I feel there's some churning in my stomach. I have a bit of a headache. I have a tension. Um, what's happening in my mind? So there's this, there's this questioning if it's going to work out. And so just slowing down and being very aware about what's happening inside of you is a way to use uh, mindfulness to shift out of whatever negative behavior or whatever negative pattern you might be uh, experiencing at the time. So for me, it was anxiety and depression. Um, So the idea of uh, the idea, the impact that it might have had, I can speak to my personal experience. Um, It has allowed me to remain much more in control of myself. It has it has allowed me to um, uh, to shift out of anxious thinking. It has allowed me to shift out of uh, depression. Um, It has allowed me to make better decisions and be uh, and bring more awareness because the more you practice meditation and this and awareness and mindfulness you have the ability to recognize things before they spiral out of control and so with practice that gets better and better and that timeline between action and reaction gets gets shorter and shorter right. or the other way around where you have an action and reaction what you do is you actually create a gap between uh, somebody said something, I'm going to flip my lid. And so by using that gap, using mindfulness to create that gap, you can create a response rather than a reaction. That's So that's a practical example of something that I've worked with an executive on. Um, it's someone that would very easily flip their lid uh, and their team uh, wouldn't tell them things anymore. So they would just tell them what they wanted to hear and they would find out the project, the pro- one of the projects they worked on, that they lost a million dollars on this thing. And he's like, and he just flips a little, little even more. And so what we worked on was creating the gap between um, what you say in a meeting when someone says something to you and there's an immediate reaction to create a little gap, to create a little gap, whether that's even just taking a breath and be like, okay, notice what's happening. Where do you feel this? What are you thinking? And then say something as a response that was, uh, you know, that was an application of mindfulness in, uh, in, in that kind of a context. Yeah, no, I love that. And that's, that's the essence probably of what we were working on with in addiction treatment and what like it's that gap it's creating a pause between feeling shitty and then taking action to do something about it by you know in- ingesting a substance if it's a substance addiction mm-hmm. or you know answering another email if it's a workaholism problem or going to amazon and throwing something on the card or numbing ourselves out some way or, or other or right. flipping out of your employees or setting a kind of example that you don't want to set changing the culture through the way that you behave um, the, the other thing that comes out of it or, or level two that I often get to with clients is that once we are, once we have that awareness to create the gap, then it's to reinforce the power of choice and intention where now you have a gap. Well, now you get to choose how you want to show up. 
what's the intent? So this is where we can go back to the compass. Am I moving toward the kind of leader I want to be? Or am I moving away from the kind of leader I want to be? Am I flipping out and, and, and scaring people away from not telling me stuff? Or am I going to slow down, stop, and ask a curious question to understand where they're coming from rather than uh, attack? So, so you, can be used, you can use it a number of different ways. Yeah, to like deal with the behaviors of like the status quo type behaviors, the defensiveness, the the risk avoidance, the whatever the, that package, or to like you say, use that compass more effectively. So it sounds like for you, your mindfulness practice has helped on both sides of the spectrum, or like mm-hmm. if it is a spectrum from you know symptoms of anxiety and depression, which interestingly we could dig into this a little bit if we wanted to, or we can go somewhere else. But like I, I always think of addiction and depression and anxiety as this like little three headed monster package that often just go together because oftentimes when people are in depression or in anxiety, we seek ways to cope with that. And it's the coping mechanisms that we develop. And this is like the nuts and bolts of my TEDx talk, probably Mm -hmm. um, where it's like that distress causes us to take action. And when you realize that you can become addicted to anything, when you, when you Google tanorexia and it's the addiction to tanning beds and you're like, Oh, that's a thing. Like people can get like, we can get as as humans we can get addicted to anything and it's it's the roots of it i think are in um anxiety depression that kind of spectrum so we don't have to dig into that um what i'm curious about or what i run into and i'd love your thoughts on this just because i value your thoughts on things like this is rugged individualism independent capitalist kind of society and we often pair that or we're now trying to pair that up with something like mindfulness which is inherently individualistic people in their heads thinking of like how do we not reinforce the system of individuality how do we get to the maybe the more collective we or what have you been thinking about when you're talking with leaders trying to make that you mentioned earlier in the in the show that there's a plateau that people hit where it's like rugged individualism being good at my job got me this far but it's not going to get me and my company to the moon right it's not going to do that for us that it's a process of forced evolution is when those people hit that wall, there's a few different ways to, there's a few different ways to react. And, and so depending, and, and for some people, they stay at that level and some people like go through a, a tough time of, of the transition and then they evolve. Um, so let me, let me, let me figure out a way to answer that question a little bit better. So ask me again in, uh, so I can get to a specific, so we can get to a specific thing. Maybe there's not a, like a great question, but it's a worry or it's a concern or it's something that I butt up okay. against when I, when I try and unpack the individualistic tendencies that we certainly have here in Western society with something like mindfulness layered into it, which is, you know, okay. me practicing for myself. Yeah. So the interesting thing with mindfulness is that it's a practice that has been removed from the philosophy. Um, so the practices of mindfulness come from a lot of yogic trad- traditions, come from a lot of Eastern philosophies, where you have now taken just that part out, stripped it out of its meaning and context, right? And then you turned it into this thing that's a solution for for feeling sad, for feeling angry for feeling anxious feeling uh you know things are unfair or whatever else for being a higher individualistic performer right like yeah all of that, like <laughs> clearly be more mindful be, yes be more mindful so you can do things better faster <laughs> with bigger results do more stuff. yeah um 
So, so that's one part that's missing is the philosophy around that kind of practice. Um, and and uh, what you would notice if you looked at some of the sources um, where that comes from. So, for example, in, in the Buddhist tradition, there is a um, I'm also read and I've been to a number of different Buddhist temples. I've been to a, a few different ceremonies and those kind of things. Um, one of the things that is a practice that it's a part of that kind of philosophy is a meta meditation. So a meta meditation is where you wish um, um, health to other people, for example, where you wish other people to be happy. And so just through the centering process of doing something like a meta meditation, you know, I remember doing it once and I was, you know, I, I was... <laughs> I was sitting on my cushion. I was. I started crying because I'm imagining all these people, and so like that part of philosophy married with that kind of mindfulness is is the part of the change. So, so one thing is if 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 you know someone listening or watching might want to explore this a little bit, I would look at uh, meta meditation. It's it's a uh, it's a really really powerful, and there's some guided ones that you can go through. They'll give you a taste of the philosophy that goes with the practice of mindfulness. <clears throat> when we're talking about this idea of, uh, of going from an indivi individualistic society into, into more togetherness, I have a bit of a different context for it. And I think we've been exposed to some glimpses of what that would look like. Now I have a different context for it because I lived through war as a kid. And um, <clears throat> when you are faced with dire circumstances, uh, people are going to react in different ways, but the very, at a very basic level, we want to be good to other people. So what we've seen, for example, when every time there's an earthquake or a hurricane or some other kind of a natural disaster, we want to help other people. The people that are in those kind of situations, they help each other. Now, I remember in Calgary in the floods of 2013, there were there was so much help. You know, uh, my wife's work organized. Uh, so she worked at WestJet at the time. They went down into Bowness to shovel stuff out of people's basements that were flooded. Um, I volunteered a bunch of times. I made food and delivered it to the to the temporary shelters where some of where some of these people were that were affected by floods. That's our natural state, um, I believe. It's it's just that um, we tend to forget it because of the environment that we're in, and so the the that change can happen in the, in an, at an individual level where we need someone we need people to start leading the charge mm -hmm. um there are organizations that are being built with those kind of values and i also believe that the next generation so the millennials and, and younger are in such a position where they are leading us to more toward i believe more togetherness they see the way that things are working and they see that there isn't a way for them to exist um for some, yes, absolutely. So I don't want to overgeneralize here, but at, at, at a um, for for most of them, the way to move forward is together. And I think that you know, I think that we'll see a, a growth beyond uh, polarization. I hope. I think that we'll see a growth beyond um, um, the idea of the rugged individualist, but rather than I'm going to bring what I can contribute to the team, the company, the society, the, the country. And we'll do some stuff. We'll do some really cool stuff together. We just need someone to make that possible. Mm -hmm. We need um, we need leadership. We need we need. And there's you know there's a. It seems like there's just a sorely lacking void in leadership in society right now. You know, certainly in politics, I think that's true. I think in corporations, like I'd be hard pressed to name a few that I was inspired by, like over the past few years. Right, like it seems like we have. Um, 
a lack of leadership and it's it be, i'd be interested maybe i need to get my grandma on the show and talk about how this has changed over time because obviously we have a recency bias both of us are fairly young guys still right um, maybe we need more patience is what i'm hearing a little bit like there's you know there's a little bit of and yet i find myself being really impatient because well, you know, in the face of these challenges change takes time and i think the unfortunate thing is like you know what i mentioned earlier with the natural disaster when people come together it's I mean, ideally, we don't have to go through disaster to find a way to work together. You know, uh, what do you think and, about that? Based on your, <laughs> you grew up in war, and you've right. you've been you've used the floods as an example. We're in the midst of a pandemic. Um, right? Do we need crisis? Do we need some impetus to get us off the I mean, couch? Crisis accelerates things, and crisis can really expose uh, people for the kind of behaviors they have naturally. So you have people that would hoard toilet paper. And you have people that would go out and get groceries for the elderly neighbors, right? So, I mean, you get to choose the kind of person you want to be. Um, you know, uh, one story comes to mind, and there was a person, I can't remember where he where they were from, but I remember reading the story. They bought up all the Lysol wipes or whatever else from Costco or whatever it was. And Costco was like, no, you can't return it. And uh, they were out several thousands of dollars because they're trying to sell those kind of things at a, at a profit because we've normalized that kind of behavior. And in some way, they, that person probably felt that this is the way that it works. You buy low, you sell high. And, you know, I'm, I'm part a of a corporation. I'd have my share prices to be through the roof. And meanwhile, it's just a shitty behavior, you know. And, and so at some kind of level, I'm hoping that person would have known that was the wrong thing to do. Um, so, so. There, like I said, you know, maybe that person has changed their view. I don't know if there's a second wave, there's a second pandemic three years from now. How are they going to react then? I don't know. But we as a society, you know, punish that kind of a person for being a crappy person. And so, so that's the kind of, uh, um, that's kind of our real reflection on, on, uh, on our natural state, I believe. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to watch. Like I said earlier, this is the eve of an American election. Right. That seems seems like it might be like a final exam, a little bit for that country. Around like, did you learn anything? Did you learn anything? No, no. Well, I mean, here's the way that I that I see that too. I see the the people that are, for example, you know, where we're talking about Trump or or Biden, Republican, Democrat, and et cetera, et cetera. It goes down into smaller states and courts and all that kind of stuff. Um. You know, I used to get um, angry and disappointed in in people that share the, the kind of views, but at the same time, you know, like you mentioned, there's a there's a reason for that kind of behavior. It could be out of fear. It could be out of uh, out of uh, some or out of out of the context that they grew up in. It could have been a personal experience. It could be a number of different things. Um, and to shift out of that kind of, I adhere to this kind of ideology and this person represents my ideology and to let's do stuff together, um, which is the way that things used to be. So it's almost like a returning back to uh, a circle of collaboration um, is going to take some work and it's going to take inclusion. You know, uh, the one thing that comes to mind, there was a person, I can't remember what his name was, but um, he was a black man that would go and talk to people of the KKK. And he eventually, uh, through conversations with people out of that organization, eventually um, helped a few of them leave the organization and see things differently. Mm -hmm. And so it's that kind of effort and that kind of leadership and that kind of risk-taking and that kind of vision that, um, that takes individual action 
that can create a ripple effect. And then, then you have your first follower, second follower and so on. Yeah. It seems like maybe it's a, it's an actual, like there's a piece, but before we get to transformation, before we get to the evolution of something where first we need to seek understanding. And that's, you know, I spent a lot of time, like I said, working with young people struggling with addictions and their families in the woods. And we would always strive for understanding before we tried to change anything or help them change anything because understanding what they're like is actually going on and the root causes we can yeah. try and change all we want. And, and I'm guilty of that until I actually understand, like I say, why maybe I didn't go for a run today and I did something else that understanding of, is this the, like go back to your compass metaphor. Are these my values? Are these values I think I should have because somebody else has them or because yeah. society helped like imprint them on me in some way. Um, and, and to get there, it takes a certain process of evolution. It takes, it takes wanting to change. It takes being exposed to other possibilities because if you think about it, um, you know, if you think about someone that might be really far into, into, for example, that way of thinking ideologically, their view is very narrow. Um, so what does it take to expand it just a little bit and expand it just a little bit? Um, you know, I listened, I listened to a podcast yesterday, uh, where they talked to someone that helped get people out of cults and there was a four-step process that they used and, and it takes a lot of work. Um, and then that's, that's also noble work where you're actually affecting change in a different way. And change is also painful, you know, to go, to go through it, there's a cost to pay. You know, I think about the, 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 uh, the article that I'm writing right now about my experience with the transition it's there's a cost to change and so the the the, the thing that you come up with is the vision worth more than the pain mm-hmm. and uh, and that's another part of the that's another part of the process and you have to make the vision worth the worth the effort you have to make the vision worth the commitment yeah. are the stakes big enough to justify the risk that's, yeah. that's involved in the uncertainty um yeah. Um, we could talk about this probably for another hour and, but maybe we should just do a two-parter. So I won't wait a full <laughs> year or more to have you on the show again, because I, I find our conversations very life-giving and very hopeful. And, and so I hope that uh, our listeners do as well. I'll yeah. tell you one thing when you mentioned hopeful and uh, maybe this is where we can wrap up the conversation. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, when I was a kid, I, I lived through war and, um, so I was in a situation where I've been shot at. I was in a situation where we didn't have running water or electricity or gas or heat or, or any of those kind of things. So I was in a city that was under siege and everything was shut off. <clears throat> and in those kind of moments, you know, when I was pretty young, so I didn't really understand, you know, I understood that I was shot at. I understood those kind of things that we had to run. Uh, you know, we had to go get water from a water truck every once in a while. We had to go get food. We had to go. We had to. I remember we had. Uh, uh, there was a period of time when the UN would deliver uh, MERs uh, from from the army, and that's what we would have. For example, two MERs for a week for a family to eat. <laughs> those kinds of things. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, in those kind of times, you had people that were in. You know, literally, your community came the building that you lived in. People that you've never talked to before are now uh, collecting together in the in the basement of the building because uh, the building is getting shelled, and you get to meet, you get to create all kinds of different relationships that are that are very different. You would never have done otherwise. And in those kind of moments, there were people that, knowing that we could be literally dead tomorrow, or they could be dead tomorrow, uh, 
they were the ones that gave us hope, us as kids and other people in the community. And that was the one thing that, that you know, on reflection recently, I keep saying, you know, I'm catching myself. Uh, on reflection more recently in the last year and a bit, specifically as we went through the pandemic, I was thinking about, you know, what is my role and what can I contribute? In those kind of times, when you feel like there's almost no hope, because at that particular point in time, in that situation, for those people, a lot of them died. Um, there was this sense of hey, this could be it. There might be no hope, but they were the ones that would give hope to others. And so that was a gift that um, they would give to other people so that they could continue on their journey. They would give them the energy to keep moving forward and to keep doing things. And so on reflection, um, I don't remember if I wrote about it much, but it was this idea of being the hope and being a beacon that will give others light for lack of a better term. So I'm sorry to go kind of meta with it. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a qualifier of the kinds of leaders that I believe that we need, that I would like to see more of, that I would like to see get more of a spotlight. They're the ones that are enabling others. They're the ones that are giving other people hope. They're the ones that are uh, making it possible for other people to step up and make change happen, to support them along the way. And so one of the things that I have jotted down on my whiteboard is to be the hope. I love that. And that's a, a great way to wrap up the show. Um, a leader is a dealer in hope. And that's uh, that's pretty meta, but it's pretty, uh, it's pretty important. And I think that that's what this world needs. And it needs people like you to come alongside those leaders and to give them the support and the hope that they might need in their dark times when they run up against the, the edges of their competency and their experiences. And so thank you, Ernest, so much for joining me. Um, Anybody who is watching this now or watching it on replay or is just listening to the audio version, you should definitely connect with Ernest at ernestbarbaric.com. Read the things he writes, listen to his podcasts and uh, connect with him if you need somebody to come alongside you for this journey of growth with you or your team that you're on. So thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your evening. Hey, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.